This morning, I want to ask you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12. And while you're turning there, I just want to take a quick review of some of the one another passages we've covered so far. We began in John 13 and 15, considering Christ's commandment to us as his followers that you would love one another as I have loved you. And then we began to explore other passages, and we're, we're just kind of working our way through the New Testament because there are actually about 70 one another passages. And when I say one another passages, if you're unfamiliar with this term, it just is, it's a little phrase that you see re- repeated throughout the New Testament, and it will often say things that actually help us to understand what it means to love one another. And so in Romans 12, we were looking at that concept, we're actually members of one of another, and there were several key points in that particular passage where the Lord teaches us that our love for one another ought to be genuine, unhypocritical. It ought to be a kind of a family affection, a brotherly affection. He even says, outdo one another in showing honor, and then says, live in harmony with one another. Well, this is how we understand what it really means to love one another. We then looked, uh, took some time to look into Romans 15, a very challenging scenario because at the church at Rome, there were significant divisions between people, opinions that really mattered to them individually that they couldn't reconcile. And so there was a, there was a division, a break in the fellowship that began to uh, develop. And God spoke through the Apostle Paul telling them that they should not come together to argue about their personal opinions but rather they needed to come together and welcome one another. And we looked at that term and explored a little bit as to what that really means to welcome one another, to receive one another as God, for Christ's sake, has received us. And we looked at the example of Jesus, and we're amazed, aren't we, that he actually entered our world and adapted himself to us in our weakness, in our need. And for him, that meant becoming a Jewish man, first a Jewish baby, And then as he grew up in that context, observing all the Jewish laws, uh, and and some of those were of a ceremonial nature that he knew by the end of his life and his death on the cross, he would actually make them out of date. He would fulfill every one of them. But he still submitted himself to that cultural context because he was here on planet Earth to save a people, and not just Jews, but actually open salvation for Gentiles as well. And then last week, Matt, so skillfully and I thought just powerfully walked us through 1 Corinthians 11. The context of the church at Corinth is that there are a number of points of division uh, and we're going we're gonna to continue in 1 Corinthians 12 today, but they were actually coming to the Lord's table, probably the, the pinnacle experience for the people of God, the fellowship uh, around those precious symbols, the shed blood of Jesus Christ represented by that cup of blessing as we sometimes call it and the broken body of Jesus represented by that unleavened bread, torn, um, even as his body was broken for us. Well, the Corinthians had turned that special celebration and worship service into a mess. And the rich were coming early and gorging themselves, some even getting drunk, so that by the time the poor people came to the love feast, there was nothing left for them. And probably some of those poor people have been working hard all day because, you know, in that culture, um, Owners, masters, employers weren't given Sundays off. There are a lot of things to consider there. And Paul says, this this is not the Lord's table. 
and he reprimands them and corrects them. And he calls them, actually, to wait for one another. And there's more to it than just wait for everybody to get there and then start your love feast. But there's a principle underneath that that Matt showed us so skillfully uh, that, that God is actually calling us to just put others ahead of ourselves, to be mindful of the body that we're a part of. This is all part of how we love one another. Well, Paul continues now in chapter 12, and I'm going to take about four minutes to read through this. this is a little, I'm going to read the entire chapter, um, and when I say that, some of you feel like, oh, man, that's so long. It, it actually isn't, all right? So if somebody wants to time it, tell me later how long it is, but, it, but I think it's important And um, though I'm going to survey some of this real quickly, we're trying to get down to the next key one another phrase, and that actually comes in verse 25, but I think it's important in light of last week's message and where we're headed this morning that we continue reading. So 1 Corinthians 12, that's page 959 if you're using one of the Bibles from the book rack there in the back of the pew in front of you. Follow along as I read. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. All were made to drink of one Spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. 
Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all, are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. And some of you have already scanned ahead and like, oh, 1 Corinthians 13, that's the great love chapter. Yeah, that's exactly where he's going. So you can see in the context, the, the way to correct divisions is that we actually practice this love that Jesus Christ, first of all, demonstrated toward us and has commanded us to follow. Now, just quickly reviewing some key terms from chapter 11 that Matt covered last week. The problem for Corinth it can be summarized in two terms, divisions and factions. Divisions and factions. And a division could be thought of just as a tear. Uh, a, a schism would be another word. And it could be a, a tear in, in the mindset or the sentiment, and consequently there are factions that arise. You know the word factions originally came from a word that has to do with just a choice. And in and of itself, it's, it's fine. The problem is when we become so opinionated or opinionativeness, as one of the commentaries I consulted this week, and I thought, that's an interesting term, a coin of, of a term there. When our opinionativeness becomes so strong, it actually creates opposing parties. And that's exactly what was going on in Corinth. So, so that's the problem that's in place. And these divisions and factions were sometimes over personalities. If you go back to chapter 1, and in this church, they all had their favorite preachers. And some said, I'm of, a, I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos, who was a great preacher actually from Egypt. Uh, others were saying, we're for, we like Peter. I mean, we're, we're loyal to him. And then you had the Christ party, who were actually trying to make Jesus a kind of mascot. And that doesn't honor the Lord at all. So there were, there were divisions over personalities. There were divisions, uh, as we saw last week, at the Lord's table. And here, there is a division that Paul is beginning to address concerning spiritual gifts. What Paul is going to do is correct their thinking because they've elevated a particular gift, and it seems it's the gift of tongues. They've just put that at the top of the heap. And basically said, the most spiritual people in this church are the ones who can speak in tongues. Well, Paul's going to correct that. And so that gives you a sense of why he's writing and, and speaking specifically to so many of these gifts and how God has designed the body. And this is very, very important for us. Now, to correct that, Paul's actually going to take Corinth to a very simple truth that addresses our tendency toward division and faction. Do you know what centrifugal force is? All of you do. You just may not have thought about that for a while. I'm sure all of you do. Um, show that first picture. You ever been on one of those? If you could see that, I mean, the, the young kids are smiling, and I'm filling in some blanks here. That looks like a grandfather here, you know, to the, to the right of the screen. He's too big to be on that merry-go-round, and though those little kids are laughing, his weight and the, the, the strength and force that he's going to bring to that merry-go-round I think are going to make this thing end badly. But I couldn't find any pictures beyond this. So I found another example of just sheer stupidity on a playground merry-go-round. Can you see what these boys are doing? And the kid on the left has a moped, and he's put the, the back tire, which is connected to the engine. Let me step down here to make sure everybody can see. And there's, there are actually a couple different YouTube clips like this. And here's slide number two. And so he begins to spin it. And you can see the poor boy in the blue shirt is in serious trouble because centrifugal force is is flinging them apart from the center. And I, you know, as a, as a dad of teenagers, 
you know, I look at this and I think, I, I get it. <laughs> Especially teenage boys. The frontal lobe doesn't develop until like mid-20s, fully developed. And, and one or two or three of them were like, hey, I got a great idea, and everybody else bought into it. And I think if you ask Blue Shirt Boy, is that a great idea? He'd probably say no. Now, none of them are thinking about centrifugal force, but that's what really went into play. And that's a painful physics lesson for them, isn't it? You know, much like a kind of a silly video like that, though, the re- there's a centrifugal force in, in spiritual realms. There's a force that causes us to be spun away from the center where we would enjoy safety and fellowship. And the force I'm really talking about is sin. And one of the things that sin has done, and Paul begins to address it here in this passage, and even refers, if you go back to the first couple of verses, and, and look at what he says, verse 2, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. Now, pagans is, is used pretty broadly. It just means when you were not in relationship with Jesus Christ. You were led astray. And it's interesting to me that being flung from the center and you even think in terms of what the Bible tells us about God creating the first man and woman and placing them in a perfect environment and, and joining them in perfect fellowship, all right? That's the center of, of the universe, as it were. God is at the center, and we're created to be rightly united to him. But sin enters the world, and, and suddenly we are flung from that center point, flung from a relationship with God. Yet at the same time, isn't it fascinating that every culture eventually tries to create its own gods? Now, Paul uses the term idols because at Corinth, there was a pantheon of idols. And part of the centrifugal force of sin is not only to spin us away, but because that sin remains in us and we're people who are, who are needy and fearful and desperate and worried and weak, um, we, in rejecting the one true God, we still know we need to find other sources of protection and healing and blessing and benefit. It's just fascinating to me that we as a culture apart from God would actually have to find multiple idols. And so whether it be a culture like Paul is addressing that had their idols and gods of war or love or fertility or agriculture or gods of the sea or the mountains or the rivers, all of these idols reflect our longing for help and protection, don't they? I mean, that ties back to Psalm 33. He's our help and our shield. We know we need help and we know we need a shield. The question is where are we gonna find it? And you know, our generation is still idolatrous at heart. We're just a little more sophisticated in how we fashion them. But I want to give you a a working definition of idolatry that really hits home to me. And this actually comes from uh, Tim Keller, who is a, a pastor and preacher that God has used in many ways. And he's done a lot of, I think, really helpful thinking and preaching and teaching on this notion of idols of the heart. And Keller defines idolatry as anything we look to more than we look to Christ for our sense of acceptability, joy, significance, hope, and security. That is, by definition, our God. And I've underlined a couple of key concepts there because I want you to just park your heart there for a moment and think in terms of, so where do I find my acceptance? Where do I find my joy? 
Where am I seeking my significance or my hope or my security? He goes on to write, a God is something we adore, an idol is something we adore, serve, and rely on with our whole life and heart. In general, idols can be good things. Listen to this. Family, achievement, work, and career, romance, talent, and more. Even gospel ministry. How do you make an idol out of gospel ministry? Well, it becomes the source of all those things you're looking for. So good things that we turn into, and this is really helpful, ultimate things to give us the significance and joy we need. He goes on to write, then they drive us into the ground because we must have them. A sure sign of the presence of idolatry is inordinate anxiety, anger, or discouragement when our idols are thwarted. So if we lose a good thing, it makes us sad, but if we lose an idol, it devastates us. Isn't that challenging? A lot of us don't think in terms of idolatry because we don't have little figurines set up in our house or we didn't, we, we're not traveling to a temple where they have bigger figurines and statues in position. And you didn't come into this place today and have the opportunity to bow in front of some wood or, or stone or brass or whatever, whatever form that idol might have taken, but some of us walked in with all kinds of idols in our hearts. Let me walk you through one quick example of this, if I can, as we try to think in terms of what are the idols of our hearts. That's a, that's a really helpful picture for us, isn't it? I jumped ahead. Sorry, guys. You're scrambling, though. Chad does a great job with me. <coughs> it may be an idol of approval. So no, there's not a statue in a great hall but the reality is you, you, you long for the approval of others. It may be the idol of comfort or control. And as long as you have control, you feel really good. It could be the idol of power or pleasure. Let's take one of those just for a moment. and just Because I, I, really, I think this is really important for us not just to blow by Paul's couple of verses regarding the idolatry that once characterized the Corinthians because if if we don't see ourselves as we really are, I don't think we can fully appreciate the good news of what Paul is about to say. So let's take one of those idols. Go to the next slide. How about the idol of approval? And I say the approval pantheon, it, it, it might not have the label approval, but there are things that are related to it. So real quickly, we'll just scroll through a couple of things. It may be that you're all about your appearance or you're all about the relationships or your achievement Uh, or the social circles you run in, but ultimately it comes down to approval. And some symptoms of this kind of idolatry that I think we all need to wrestle with, how do you handle criticism and failure? Well, you know what? If If your God you're worshiping is all about the approval of others and they come to you, whether it be in the job or in school or even in the household and say, can I share something with you? And it's criticism, it feels like they're actually tearing your God down. It could be something as simple as you have difficulty relaxing. Because when you relax, you begin to really think through where you are and what you're about, and and that's motivation to get busy again because you need the approval of people around you. It sometimes manifests itself just in pride. I've worked hard to be where I am, and, and you people ought to recognize it. Well, that's pride. How about envy? You see somebody else who's been blessed with a greater measure of material goods or success or seemingly had opportunities that 
you kind of feel like you should have had, and you're envious of them. Could it be that you're worshiping in the pantheon of acceptance and approval? Finally, you feel slighted if you're not included. I didn't get invited to that birthday party. What's the deal? Am I not good enough for them? You know, there, there are always about 82 reasons why it didn't go the way you didn't think. Maybe they just forgot. Maybe they, you know, maybe mom said, we can only have eight people at the party, and you're number nine on the list, and while that's painful, sorry, the bowling alley can only take six in the lane. You were number seven. But you know, if you, if you know that your ultimate approval rests in Jesus, all of his grace, all of his mercy, that he could not love you any more than he does love you, that his blood could not be any more powerful than it is to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If you know that your approval is perfectly secure in him, then some of that stuff, whether it be criticism or being slighted, you, you just let it go. Because at the end of the day, you're good with God. But see, when you don't have that security of God, you go manufacture your own idols, and that's exactly what these people had done. And so Paul is saying, remember your former lifestyle? Well, there's actually a kind of idolatry that's creeping back into Corinth where based on their understanding and use and practice of certain gifts, so their status or their approval rating goes up or down in the Corinthian church. And Paul's coming in to say, stop it. Stop it. I think that's what really sets the stage for us to marvel at what God does. Now, here's the first big point I want you to see. Verse three tells us, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And all through this portion, he, he reminds them, it's the same spirit, it's the same Lord, it's the same God. So in contrast to all of those idols, he's bringing them back to the one true God, isn't he? And by the way, he's saying there is a deceptive message that's floating around out there. And in our day and age, it's, it's deceptive in other ways. I don't, I don't know of anybody who's standing up in a public place or publishing material right now saying Jesus is accursed, whether cursed by God, and so his life and death have no significance for us whatsoever, or just people who are so, I know there are people who are so angry at God that they would curse the name of Jesus, but I don't hear that message being promoted in a, a, a context like this. But there are forms of it, aren't there? Anything that diminishes the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is a deceptive message. But let's press on. There's also a saving confession right here in this text. And what is the saving confession? Jesus is Lord. Do you know that term Lord is actually the New Testament equivalent to the Old Testament title for God, Yahweh, or name for God, the special name, Yahweh. And both the, the Hebrew version and the Greek version of, of these names, this name for the Lord Jesus Christ, reveals him to us as the supreme one, the sovereign one, the self-existent one. And one of Paul's points in this passage is not only that you need to turn away from all the idolatry, you need to know that there's actually only one God, only one Lord. You may say, you're getting all that from the text? Well, Yes, I do think that point is being made here, but let's talk about some other really important texts. There are a couple of passages from Isaiah's prophecy that are really powerful to me, and they bless my heart. They challenge and convict my heart. 
Because Jesus Christ is not one option among many in a pantheon of gods that we could choose from this morning. He's the one and only God. Isaiah 43, verse 10. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I know there are various religions in the world that see a pantheon of gods. And you have everything from some of the Eastern religions that have hundreds and thousands of gods uh, that they are pursuing and seeking to other expressions of faith that would, that would not affirm a Trinitarian position as we would one God, uh, three persons, but would say you know three gods or, and varieties of that beyond that. But the scriptures make it very clear, not only in Isaiah 43, 10, but also Isaiah 44, verse six. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. There's, there's no other God. Now, people have imagined and created and tried to suggest or say, um, Paul even addressed this early in 1 Corinthians 4, if you wanted to go back and look at what he says there, and then 1 Corinthians 8, uh, but there's only one God. And so God is, God is not only reminding us of that truth, but he is calling us to put our faith in this one Lord. I love Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. That's why I say this phrase is a saving confession. It's more than just the acknowledgement of a theological truth of the, one, uh, of the oneness of God. It's an expression of faith. I pause here for a moment and I wonder if you have ever confessed that from your heart that Jesus Christ is the one Lord. Has that ever been a, a point in your thinking where you've realized, you know what, I, I'm pursuing my acceptance or approval or power or any, any number of those things that we talked about earlier in the wrong places, and I'm only gonna find that actually in one God, and the one true God is Jesus Christ. You know, if you've never turned away from your idolatry and turned away from your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ, confessing that he is Lord, why not do that today? Why not do it right now? You say, how do I do that? Just quietly from your heart in speaking to God out of faith. You don't have to speak those words audibly. It has to be spoken from your soul. You can do that. So there's one Lord, and God calls us to put our faith in that one Lord. Now pressing on very quickly, though, verses four and following, God provides for us through one body. Again, this is beautiful to me because the idolater is seeking seeking. Uh, acceptance and forgiveness and protection and help and all those things in, in multiple idols. Just this frenetic pace of trying to find what I need in different locations and okay, we'll set up this God and this will be the God of war and this will be the God of peace and this will be my God of, of, of protection and this will be the God that, that will worship when it comes time to planting the crops and this will be the God that will worship when it comes time to finding uh, or, or starting a family. And God is bringing it all back to himself saying, I'm the one Lord. And when you come to me, let me tell you how I designed the body to actually meet the very specific needs of your heart, of your life. Verse four tells us he gives a variety of gifts to the body of Christ. These are, these are given by the Spirit. They're empowered by the Spirit. Uh, and notice in verse seven that God purposes good for us through the exercise of these gifts within the context of the body of Christ. I love this. 
Look at verse seven. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For the common good. The Spirit's powerful enough that he could just minister to us individually everything that we're in need of. God could have set this thing up where you don't actually have to be in a relationship with anybody else. But that's not what he did. And so when we turn away from idolatry and sin and put our faith in this one Lord, part of what happens is we are baptized in the Spirit at that point, and Paul's alluded to that even in this passage, one Spirit, one baptism, and, and then the Spirit indwells us, and as he indwells us, he actually gifts us in particular ways. And no individual gets the full set of gifts. As a matter of fact, we don't even know what the full set is. There are four different passages in the New Testament that give us su- suggested, uh, or I, I should say four different passages that give us lists of gifts, but not one of them is comprehensive. And you see some are pretty broad and some are fairly narrow and focused, but here's the truth that I want to just settle in your heart. The Spirit takes up residence within you and then he gifts you with a view that you would exercise that gift and bring good to the people around you, the very good we're all seeking. And even in this passage, as you read through just some of the, um, a sampling of the gifts uh, that the Spirit gives, you see everything from gifts of, of knowledge and understanding, because we open this, this book, for instance, and say, what does that mean? Well, you know, there are people gifted within the body that God has really given an understanding. They, they have wisdom to bring to bear, and they bring God's truth to bear upon our lives. There's sickness in our congregation right now, and we're praying. You need to keep Becky on your prayer list. I'm so glad Becky and Steve could be here tonight, or this morning, tonight. Glad you could be here this morning. Don't get too close, right? The immune system is like really fragile. So you gotta give her like an air hug or air high fives from from the distance. She's battling a very serious illness. And you know what? Some of you are gifted to pray in faith with her for her healing. I'm so grateful that she has already asked our, our pastoral team to practice James 5, and you know, we anointed her with oil and prayed over her for healing. And, and we're, Lord willing, going to do that again here. We'll keep doing it. Some of you are gifted of God with mercy because you'll recognize a need like that and, and say, I, I need to do something. Yeah, that's right. The Spirit could do it all himself, but he's actually chosen to move in you to gift you and then move through you as you exercise that gift. It's awesome. Verse 11 tells us that God empowers the exercise of the gifts. He also says he apportions to each one individually as he wills, that is he assigns what he wants to, whom he wants. And then verse 18, he arranges the members in the body, each of them as he chose. You know, that little run of terms in those three verses, two in verse 11 and one in verse 18, just remind us, this is God's work. And it's, it's good to desire the higher gifts, as verse 31 says. There's nothing wrong with saying, Lord, I, I would love to have a, a gift of mercy or administration or wisdom or any, any one of those gifts. It's good to desire them, but at the end of the day, the, the, the sovereign God is gonna decide what is best for you and for the body through you. And so we praise him for that. 
And we praise him that we don't have to run to some local pantheon to have our needs met. What we're seeing is that he so empowers the individuals in the context of a body that we can be confident, believe it or not, that even in a, even in a small group like this, we got what we need. Now, some of it has yet to be discovered, but how amazing. And then look at verses 12 Verse 12 and following, for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, (coughs) though many are one body, so it is with Christ. And he's going to continue to develop that thought. Verse 20, many parts, yet one body. Verse 27, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So what you see God doing is creating a unity in the body. A variety of gifts, which is beautiful. He purposes good for us through those gifts to be exercised in the body. And then number three, he creates a unity in the body. He's very serious about this. You need to come together for your mutual good. Now finally, and we're finally at the the key one another text, God establishes a personal regard for one another, and that's going to be worked out as we care for one another. God establishes a personal regard for one another. Look at verse 25, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care one for another. God regards every member as essential. When we were reading this passage earlier, we came to verse 22, which teaches us that the weaker are indispensable. Then verse 23, the less honorable, we actually bestow the greater honor. In the verse 23, unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. That's humorous, isn't it? I mean, there's a reason to wear clothing. Although all of you is marvelously created by God, not all of you needs to be displayed publicly. Now, nobody wants to think in terms of that, you know, in the spiritual body of Christ kind of teaching that maybe I'm one of the unpresentable parts. I mean, I struggle just to think that I'm a knobby knee or a bony elbow, right? But I'm where I am by God's design, and God actually just elevated the the value of every single one of us. And if God honors every member, then we also must honor every member. And if God says not one of you is indispensable, then we better not be thinking in terms that someone here, well, we could get along without them. Be careful. Because God speaks in very gracious terms. He regards every member as essential. And as noted, go to verse 24, he regards every member with honor. And, and he has so composed the body, that term speaks of God actively causing the parts of the body to fit together, arranging this overall structure, putting it together. I mean, it, it's almost reminiscent of Genesis 1, isn't it? Where God speaks the worlds into existence. But the one part of creation where he does more than just speak is creating the human race. And it describes him drawing dust out of the ground and first fashioning Adam. And then as a, almost as a creative act of refinement, he draws a rib out of the side of the male and he makes the female. And here God is at work again, so composing the body. Oh, what honor he bestows by this act of composition. And then Paul says, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it actually giving respect and reverence and dignity. Now, while nobody wants to think of themselves as a body part that lacks great honor, the reality is all are essential, and because all are composed and and brought together by God, all deserve honor. 
You know, apart from God, there's not one of us that has honor in and of himself or herself. But because of God working as our creator and our Lord of salvation, there's beauty and there's value. One author writes, the shelter and ornament of clothing are used to cover those parts of the body which are conventionally regarded as the least seemly. The whole of this illustration is meant to show that rich and poor, great and small, high and low, all have their own separate and indispensable functions, and no class of Christians can wisely disparage or forego the aid derived from other and different classes. The unity of the members in one body corresponds to the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, which should prevail in the church. It is God who gives honor. It is God who assigns value to those around you and connects you to them. So as we close this morning, I want you to consider the people around you. Some of you are, are brand new here. Some of you are just getting to know one another, and we, we're not really sure yet who's gifted in what ways, and we don't even know personalities and backgrounds, but that's part of the reason we have picnics and other get-togethers, because just, you just need to sit and talk and learn. But as you sit and talk and learn, let this be the overarching or the governing uh, mindset that here's a person, don't know him well yet, but I'm, I'm believing what God has told me about this body of Christ, and he's so composed us, and he's brought us together. There's value here that, that I need to learn about, and there is gifting here that needs to be discovered and released uh, to, to go to work for the good of our church. And while our, our cultural tendency, because of how we've been brought up and just kind of the default mode that we're used to before Christ began to change our thinking. We assess people on the basis of what they wear, where they're from, their educational background, and we've got a whole list of things. And, and God just essentially laid all that aside and said, that's, that's not where the value and worth and potential lies. So we carry all that into verse 25, that there may be no divisions in the body even though we might be divided over things like race and politics and economics, educational background. But he's saying, no, no, I've brought you together. Why? That the members may have the same care for one another. So really, a twofold purpose here for God's work. First, that there be no division in the body. Again, we're early enough in this thing where there, there hasn't been a really ugly moment. But I'm, I've cautioned you before, and I'm going to warn you again. Our adversary is going to try to find those little cracks and start driving wedges in them. And you know the way we keep those cracks closed up is with gospel truth. And then part of that, though, is we actively care for one another. Now, it's interesting because this term care is actually used in a few other passages in a negative connotation for anxiety. And some of you say, oh, you just touched on my idol or at least an expression of my idolatry. Yep, I know, I'm, I'm with you there too. Some of mine is tied to control and approval. Those would be two idols I wrestle with. And, and because I don't always feel secure, then I start to feel anxious, and so I do weird, idolatrous things, and I'm continually repenting, and so should you. Um, but anyhow, back, back to the text here. 
The, the care that he's speaking of, if, if this term were used negatively, would refer to anxiety. We're anxious about something. But positively stated, it, it means that you enter into a situation uh, with a, a healthy concern, and you're assessing the need. What's going on here, and how could we help? 1 Corinthians seven thirty-two, Paul had said, I want you to be free from anxieties. And then listen to, and I think this helps illustrate it. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. And, and that's a good thing. It's one of the reasons not to get married. Sorry, Gideon. I'm not trying to like poke a hole in your engagement. And Brittany's not here right now to hear me, so don't misrepresent what I'm saying to her either. But another married man doesn't have the responsibility and care of, of wife or, or children, so he devotes himself fully to the Lord. He's anxious about the things of the Lord. Not in a negative sense, it just means he's, he's like fully engaged there. The married man cares. And we are called to care, that is to have regard for one another. In the context of this body, who are you actively caring for? There's a good place to start, and maybe a challenging one. And if you can't think of somebody that either you've made maybe a little phone call to or sent a note to or texted an encouraging word or made a visit with or, or done something to bring blessing, to bring good into their world, then you need to consider how can I show that kind of care? Because we are all called to care for one another. We're also all called to be cared for by others, so it's mutually beneficial. Finally, look at verse 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. We've had a vivid illustration of this. Matt alluded to the fact that Doreen, in taking Bob to see the doctor, stumbled on the curb, fell, uh, broke her little finger, bruised her other wrist. I don't know which hand is which, but um, you know, Doreen's hurting right now. And although a pinky in the big scheme of things is not a huge deal, you know what? If it were your pinky, it's a big deal. And I think that's a vivid illustration for us right now. That while we might minimize an individual or maybe even a family and be like, well, you know, it's not that big of a deal. It's a huge deal. And you know what? Because Doreen's pinky hurts and her wrist is bruised, she's miserable. She hurts. What's beautiful about this to me is that if one member suffers, all suffer together. And I try to find some illustrations of this. You know, it's just, it's a powerful moment when one believer says to another or others, I'm really hurting, I need prayer, or I need a hug, I need some love, and, and you see something like this. This just ought to be an ordinary part of life. What about when one member is honored? All rejoice together. Everybody's in on it. Isn't that cool? Not envious, e even though sometimes you're saying, that, you know, I thought about this this weekend, kind of followed the NBA, still sad that the Jazz didn't go further and sad that the team I've long supported, the Celtics, couldn't eliminate the forces of darkness, um, <laughs> northern Ohio. But I thought it was pretty incredible that Steph Curry, who has won three championships but has not yet won the MVP and probably deserves it as much as Kevin Durant, essentially downplayed it. It's like, 
no big deal, I got three championships. But he could be envious, couldn't he? I think he's an example of, and I don't know him really well, maybe some of you know more than I do, but at least that little testimony kind of illustrates this. He's like, we got the big trophy. I'm not worrying about the little trophy. One member's honored. We all share in that. It's as if we've all been honored. And then he says in verse 27, you are the body of Christ and members individually. Oh, what a position of privilege. It's awesome. So we care for one another. We care for one another. Let's pray together. And as we do, I just want you to think in terms, first of all, is there an idol that God might have touched in your soul today that he's saying, turn away from it? Whether, it, whether it's a literal idol, I mean, if you've got a statue of, of Buddha at home that you frequently pray to, you need to stop. That's not a true God. Or it could be an idol of a more spiritual nature. You're like, you know what? I really am about the approval of others or the acceptance or the security, just making my little world safe or having power and influence. Well, just turn away from it and confess that sin to God and say, you know, I worship the wrong things and I'm coming back to you, the one Lord, right now. And then even moving from that, just let's spend a little time and say, thank you, Lord, that you've revealed yourself to us, that we have this truth. You're the one true God. You've called us to worship you. And, and you've brought us into this remarkable body where the Spirit is at work, gifting individuals, and working for the common good. Everything I need is found in you and, and the outworking of your Spirit in the church. What a place of privilege. And then lastly, I do want each person here to be thinking in terms of what am I in a position to do right now that would show this caring love for another member? Real practically, you could call or send a little note to Becky and Steve this week to say, hey, praying for God to heal you, praying for God to give you grace. Bob and Doreen need your touch there's some little ones around here that may not need ongoing care, but we don't hear any weeping and wailing at this moment, but it'll break loose again. And maybe they just need you as a big person to snatch them up in your arms and hug them. Maybe there's a financial need you're aware of. There are a thousand ways we can show this care, and all of it flows out of how God ultimately has loved us and cared for us through Christ. Father, as we consider your word, it challenges us. <coughs> we know that we need to be changed in our thinking. We know that we need to be changed in the way we live toward one another. But oh, how I pray, oh, how I pray that you would empower us by your spirit according to your word. And that our love for one another would be marked by this kind of personal care. And again, it's with a view that all people would know that we are the disciples of Jesus Christ. Because he said, by this will all men know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. So continue that work.
that saving, rescuing, redeeming work of love, that transforming, strengthening, empowering work of love. Let it mark Gospel Hope Church. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen.